0: Hello and welcome back to the Reluctant Tom Podcast with Chris. I'm going to jump right into it today and get you guys updated with what's been going on in my life and what's been going on in the restaurant industry and what's new or what's old or recommendations. Um, Anyways, starting off, uh, I'd like to talk about indoor dining. Indoor dining is back in San Francisco, uh, up to 25% capacity. For some places that possibly have not set up an outdoor dining area at this point, I don't think twenty five percent is enough business to keep open. Uh, for other locations, I think that it's great if you've set up an appropriate amount of patio seating, and you have designated patio furniture. And you don't need to purchase more furniture than you're set because you can do your full patio uh, as well as twenty five percent occupancy indoors. Uh, The establishment that I'm working at has now, with 25% seating indoors, as well as all of the tables outside, more tables than they had previously uh, prior to COVID and can handle more people. Um, Obviously, we're maintaining six foot distance. Uh, We're keeping things sanitized and clean. We're all wearing face masks. So we're doing everything we can to uh, remove as much risk as possible uh, from spreading the uh, coronavirus to keep open here in San Francisco. Um, it's been a good time. At first, most people wanted to sit outside and a lot of people wanted to not sit inside. And now we're kind of seeing it back and forth. Um, the weather has been a little chilly at night. So most of the time people want to sit indoors as the day goes on. But earlier in the day, most people want to sit outside as the weather has been really beautiful. Uh, Let's see, what else? Um, uh, Sober October. Doing Sober October this month, uh, just kind of a way to take a break. Kind of reset myself and drink a little less. Always trying to drink a little less. A lot of fun memories to look back on, but as I drink more, the memories seem to fade and it seems to just become a reality. Uh, You know. Not that that's a bad thing. Every now and then it's good to cut loose and have a great time. And technically I started Sober October on the 2nd, but, you know, I'm using any chance I can, any excuse I can to uh, drink a little less, I guess. Uh, Still tasting wine, uh, just making sure to spit it. And for anybody out there, yes, I'm aware I can still absorb alcohol into my bloodstream after spitting the wine. I'm fully aware of that. And there has been times when I've uh, tasted a cocktail Um, since uh, October 1st. Actually, October 1st, I was drinking. October 2nd, I was drinking. And after that, I haven't been. Um, But I do a straw test on cocktails here and there, or on wines or on sakes. And for anybody that's not aware what that is, it's when you take a straw, put the straw in a glass, cover the top end with your finger to capture the uh, liquid inside the straw, and then you taste the liquid out of the straw. You kind of put it up to your mouth and then let your finger off and the liquid goes into your mouth. Um, so yes, I have consumed alcohol, but I haven't been drinking a lot of wine, which, you know, could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. It could be losing my edge. It could be, uh, you know, dulling my senses but i don't think i am i think i'm just kind of taking a little bit of a break for health and for mental purposes which is always advisable if you need to take a break folks don't forget take a break and if you need to take a break and relax and have a nice beer have a beautiful glass of wine do so but if you don't think that's gonna help uh maybe don't do it okay so uh another update with me um Since the location that I was at or the business that I was at prior to COVID had uh, closed and was not doing outdoor dining, uh, they have now started doing outdoor dining as well as indoor dining, again, up to 25% capacity, and they've asked me to come back, which is great. Um, I was, again, serving, bartending, somming, kind of doing everything. Uh, The somming position is really the position that I was the most fond of, and that's where I really kind of felt at home. Um, I've always considered myself to be a good attentive server, certainly not the best server out there. uh, And I've always considered myself to be a good bartender, but definitely not the best bartender out there. And I certainly don't think that I'm the best Psalm out there, but it's an area where I feel I fit the best. And since I've been at this new restaurant, if you've listened to the podcast prior, you know that I've been working at a sushi restaurant here in San Francisco, Uh, with an extensive sake selection, I have been asked to be the wine director of this establishment. So going forward, I'm going to try to juggle both jobs, being a wine director at a restaurant, as well as being a Psalm at another restaurant. It may sound like a lot. Probably it's a lot. It's probably more than I can handle. But I'm going to hang in there as long as I can and, and, uh, you know, go until the wheels fall off. Well, maybe not until the wheels fall off. That might be a little too far. But go until the wheels start to shake. And the car feels like it's about to fall apart. Yeah, let's say that. Okay, so I'm gonna juggle both. Uh, the sushi restaurant is not uh, incredibly uh, well known for a wine program, as most Japanese restaurants aren't, um, but that's something that I kinda of wanna change. I, I wanna to put together a good wine program, I wanna get some great wines that. Pair well with sushi, obviously there's things that are coming out of the kitchen, uh, beef options, chicken options that I think um, you can get some really fun wine to pair with as well. And uh, that's the goal, just get things to pair, get things that are approachable, nothing too esoteric or odd or, you know, austere that is going to drive people away and make people feel uncomfortable with the wine list. But, you know, there's, there's some challenges that go into that. Um, if there's not a psalm on the floor selling those bottles every night, there's a possibility that they're not going to sell. If there's not extensive staff training going on, there's the possibility that the staff won't know how to answer the guest question. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that, that go into it. It's a lot of moving pieces. It's not just about picking my favorite wines and throwing them on a wine list or picking wines that are going to sell easily and throwing them on a wine list. There's a lot of day-to-day functionality that goes on um, in that area. And uh, along with learning about sake, working in a Japanese restaurant, I've been trying a lot of Japanese food. Uh, the reason is is health benefits. Um, sober October, I've also been cutting back a lot on uh, beef and pork intake, eating a lot more fish, and trying to eat some things that are a little bit better for me. And some of those things are not the most delicious ever, uh, but I'm, I'm getting through it. Uh, so before I started taking a Japanese class, I was doing Duolingo. Uh, Duolingo is just one of those apps where you go on and you do some exercises and you try to remember words and try to remember phrases and characters and and symbols. In Japanese, it's hiragana. Uh, one of the first words that I was learning, I didn't realize until a week ago, even though I was learning it eight months ago, that it's actually something that I've been eating. That word is natto, and the food is natto, which is fermented soybean. Now, there's a lot of fermented soybean that goes on in in Japanese culture, and there's a lot of soybean usages, uh, but natto is specifically unique. Yeah, I think unique is a nice word. It's a very unique food. Um, It's supposed to be a superfood. It's supposed to be really great for your uh, gut. Uh, really great for your digestive tract. It's full of proteins. It's supposed to be really great for you. Relatively affordable uh, when it comes to uh, portion size. And uh, it is part of an everyday breakfast. From my understanding, I've never been to Japan. I've never lived in Japan. Uh, From my understanding, it's part of a healthy Japanese breakfast on a regular basis. Um, The natto that I've tried has been... Good, getting better, I think. Maybe I'm getting used to it, but I've tried a few different brands. Um, I'm definitely not going to try to uh, pronounce them on here because I'm sure that my Japanese teacher would gladly fail me if she heard my poor attempts at pronunciation. Uh, but if you're interested in knowing which natto I'd recommend, let me know. That being said, it kind of tastes like coffee beans a little bit, but it's... Really stringy, and when you eat it, it's it's kind of like spider webs are coming off of it. It's it's definitely a mental hurdle for me to uh, get over. Um, texture is a big thing for me in food. If something has an odd texture or a texture that I'm not a fan of, it makes it a little bit more difficult for me to eat. The flavor is obviously not my most ideal flavor. I love coffee. Trust me. I love coffee, but coffee flavored beans is a l- little different. Um, anyways, I've been eating it with nori or seaweed, uh, and that tends to help a little bit. The crunchiness of the texture, the saltiness of the seaweed helps. And, and oftentimes, um, you mix soy sauce into it, you mix, uh, spicy mustard into it, Uh, Some people mix egg yolks into it, raw egg yolks into it as well. And, uh, you know, all in all, I I feel good about eating it. I guess that's what it is. Whether it's a placebo effect or not, um, it makes me feel better eating it. Just like it makes me feel better eating vegetables instead of uh, just drinking beer all day. Well, I mean, drinking beer all day makes me feel amazing that day. But after that, it doesn't. So, you know, nothing wrong with drinking beer, certainly. Uh, But again, all things in moderation. Okay, so given that it's uh, Sober October, I haven't been tasting a lot of amazing, incredible things lately, uh, nor have I been cracking any of my own personal bottles. um, And I have not really tasted a lot outside of a few things uh, by the glass at my job and, and most are delicious. And, and I've mentioned a few on the podcast before. Um, but I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach. I've talked about retail, uh, offerings before. Um, so I'm going to kind of talk about those again and that's going to be the bulk of my wine talk this podcast. So, uh, here we go. Retail stuff. Um, recently went to the store and saw a few different bottles on a shelf and was trying to think, um, you know, bottles that you can find most places. Uh, Again, if you have any issues finding these wines, I'm sure that you can find them at most retail stores. I don't know necessarily if I would say Safeway um, or Whole Foods or anywhere. I went to a store called Molly Stones and I found them there, but they do have a large retail presence. Um, Well, Two of the three of the wines have a large retail presence, and so I'm sure that you can find them most places. And if you can't, again, don't forget you can always order wines online. KNL Wines is great. Um, Kermit Lynch uh, is an importer here in San Francisco. Um, has a, a huge wine selection. I'm not necessarily sure that they would have all of the wines that I mentioned, uh, but they normally have most of the stuff that you'll hear me talk about in almost all podcasts. Okay, so I wanted to talk about Sauvignon Blanc. I don't think that I spend enough time talking about white wine, uh, partially, probably because I drink mostly red wine, or I tend to prefer red wine unless, obviously, it's white Burgundy, uh, which is like crack—you can never have enough of it. Um, so I wanted to talk about two affordable, approachable uh, Sauvignon Blancs. Uh, both California—I'm sorry—both um, are New World style Sauvignon Blancs. So. You have Wither Hills Sauvignon Blanc. You know, I guess they're not New World. You know, scratch that from the record. Two Sauvignon Blancs that you're more than likely to find in the store. Here we go. Wither Hills Sauvignon Blanc, uh, 2018 Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. Marlborough is a region in New Zealand uh, known for their production of Pinot Noirs and Sauvignon Blancs. Uh, most people have probably had New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. If you haven't and you're listening to this podcast, just know that I love all wine equally. That being said, if a wine was my stepchild, it would probably be New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. But, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is an incredibly consistent product, and that's what I would give a a bonus to. Generally, when you try a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, it will have a very traditional taste profile. And not to say that's the only Sauvignon Blanc that's produced in New Zealand, because I'm sure if you went there, you'd find a lot of really amazing, really unique, fun, and interesting Sauvignon Blancs. But it's not necessarily the case for importation of product because oftentimes when somebody wants a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, they want a style that is traditional in their mind. And also that being said, uh, the same thing could be said for California Chardonnays, Oaky and Buttery, or uh, Napa Cabs, huge, uh, fruit and oak bombs. You know, um, when you think of a certain style and you think of a certain region, you think of like one type of wine. So, Wither Hills is a great opportunity or a great option if you're considering drinking a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and you want a true-to-style New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Anyways, um, a lot of citrus, a little cilantro. One thing for me that I always get on um, Sauvignon Blanc in general, whether it be Sancerre, California Sauvignon Blanc, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, I almost always get bell pepper. And I can't remember the specific chemical component right now, but maybe I'll talk about it on another podcast, that makes me taste bell peppers or jalapenos in wines. It's a certain chemical reaction that you find in Cabernets and Sauvignon Blancs and and things of that nature. Cab Franc, I think I always get a lot of vegetal, but I I don't know if I would say that I always get bell pepper. Um, Anyways, I I, I think maybe I'm just a little sensitive to it. Um, But anyways, a lot of citrus, a lot of cilantro. There's a little bit of a salinity to Weather Hill Sauvignon Blanc that kind of makes it, I would say, a a little more unique in style to other New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. Um, The grapefruit level is there. Uh, The fresh-cut grass level, I would say, is not there. And people that have had a lot of New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs are probably familiar with uh, the three major descriptive terms. Grapefruit, fresh-cut grass, and cat piss. And cat piss, folks, is an unfortunate term that I think has gone along with New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs, Um, but I don't think it's inaccurate. Just like I don't think that Nebbiolo being told that it tastes like tar and rose petals is inappropriate either. It's kind of an accurate statement. So, 2018 Witherhill Sauvignon Blanc, you can normally find for retail at about $10 to $18.00. Uh, I like this wine a lot, New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs in general a lot, with like grilled shrimp tacos, uh, with little pico de gallo. They do well with a little spice, not too much spice, and uh, seafood. Um, next wine, Dry Creek Fumé Blanc. Dry Creek Winery has been around for quite a long time Um I was lucky enough to go to the winery and do some tastings. And the day I showed up, they actually had 1990 Zinfandel open that I got to try, and it was fantastic. It's a couple years ago, let's say 2018, I think, is when I went. And it wasn't their reserve Zinfandel, it was just a regular old bottle of Zinfandel that was 18 years old and it was drinking, I'm sorry, uh, 28 years old and it was drinking really, really well. Um, but anyways, their Fumé Blanc is their flagship wine. They've been making it for 48 years, uh, 48th vintage. Um, the current vintage is 2019. They redid their packaging a little bit. I think it stands out a little bit more on the shelf. I walked past, I saw it, and I was immediately thinking, Dry Creek Fumé Blanc, I've got to talk about that on the podcast. Uh, retails at about 15 to $18. It's a, a Sonoma Sauvignon Blanc, uh, fairly true to... California-style Sauvignon Blancs as well, uh, high acidity, high citrus, a little uh, minerality. I personally get a little white pepper on the nose. Um, it's done in 100% stainless steel. So a really just clean-style Sauvignon Blanc, a great option for California Sauvignon Blanc, found almost everywhere, in almost every retail outlet there is. They have a lot of really fantastic wines, especially in the red portfolio, but Their Fumé Blanc is really their driver. Again, it's kind of their flagship wine. And if you want to just have one wine from that winery, that would be the wine they would want you to have because it's affordable, it's consistent, it's a solid product. For me, I personally enjoy it as an aperitif or just a glass of wine before dinner. I don't necessarily think that I would I don't think if I was sitting down for dinner that I would pair it with anything. I think I would drink a glass before dinner or while I was cooking dinner and, and then, you know, have something else with my meal. Um, if you're going to have it with food, I would recommend seafood or chicken. Um, you know, white wine, white meat is generally the consideration. Not always the case, but, you know, uh, I would say that's a safe bet in this case. The next wine, the last wine, and then we're going to tap into uh, whiskeys, uh, the last wine that I'm going to talk about today is Pio Cassede Barbera d'Alba. So Pio Cassede is a really, really renowned producer in Piedmont. Um, the winery is located in Alba. Uh, last year, I was lucky enough to go to Alba d'Alba and, and bounce around Alba and Barbaresco and Barolo. And... I unfortunately didn't go to Pio Cassere. Um The reasoning behind that is, is I was there during harvest and most of the wineries were not accepting tastings because they were all just hauling ass to get their grapes off the vines. And and I was lucky enough to go to a few different wineries that were right in the middle of bringing grapes in and I'm stepping over hoses and, and ducking under this and ducking under that and, you know, waiting and dodging forklifts, you know, and... <laughs> It's a lot of fun, uh, but it's definitely not something that they want a lot of people in the winery for. Um, but if I go back to Nebula, uh, Piedmont, which I I hope to, I really, really would love to go to Pio Cassette. Again, a very steamed house. They're on their fifth generation of owners, and they've been open for over 135 years. Um, the style of winemaking is really minimalistic, uh, and, and so the... The wine itself. Let's talk, Barbera d'Alba. So Barbera is the grape, Alba is the region. Barbera is kind of known as the workhorse grape in um, Piedmont. Uh, it's just kind of something that they have as an everyday drinker. Barbera and Dolcetto are, are big prominent grapes. Obviously, Nebbiolo is the the king of the whole region, I would say, and um, and. And I wouldn't say that it's an everyday drinker for me. I love Nebbiolo. If I could drink it every day, I would. But it generally fetches a little bit of a higher price point um, out of my everyday drinking budget. Um, But that being said, they do have other great varietals, and Barbera is one of those. Um, Barbera is generally a little bit more full-bodied. I wouldn't generally call Barbera a complex wine, but the 2017 Pio Cassette Barbera de Alba is complex. It's smooth. It has dark fruit like plum. And the reason why I really love this wine is because it's a great wine with balance. You're talking about something that has a fruit presence. It's it's quite forward. It's quite complex. And then it has a really great acid that goes on in the palate as well. Um, it pairs really well with mushrooms, dark meat, anything with fat. Um, I would say you could get away with... <laughs> a ribeye really well. Barbera and a ribeye sounds amazing. If I could have that right now, I would. I mean, I could have that right now. Maybe I'll... No, I'm not going to have that right now. Okay, okay. Anyways, uh, Pio Cassette, if you can find it, I'm not saying it's an incredibly common wine to find retail, but if you can find it, or if you'd like to order it online, again, highly recommended, it's... About 26 to $35, let's say. Maybe a little bit more some places, maybe a little bit less some places, but a great bottle of wine. Again, I still don't think that I would put a $30 bottle of wine in my everyday drinking category, but if I opened three bottles of wine a week and I spent $30 a bottle on this wine and I spent, you know, 15 to $20 on those bottles of whites we just talked about, it'd be a pretty good week. I think I'd be pretty happy. Okay. Okay. Now, jumping into the last category of the podcast, whiskeys. I'm just going to talk about two whiskeys really quick. Just give them a shout out because they're whiskeys that I've always really loved, um, whiskeys that I've always liked to bring into any establishment that I'm managing, whiskeys that I've always liked to sell. uh, And the reason is is because they're, A, they're consistent, but B, I like them. That's that's really the main reason. I like these whiskeys. So if you want to try them, I would recommend trying them. If you generally don't prefer bourbon or scotch, maybe they're not your cup of tea or your cup of whiskey, rather. If you want a vodka cranberry, don't drink whiskey. If you want whiskey, I recommend these. Woodford Reserve. Woodford Reserve is a whiskey that I've always really enjoyed uh, since the first time I had it. Uh, it's not an incredibly complex bourbon. It's not an incredibly unique bourbon. Uh, I mean, it's unique, but it's not something that's going to blow your mind. If you're a whiskey advocate and you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking, dude, you're a dumbass. Woodford Reserve is the most pedestrian shit there is. Well, I would argue that it's not the most pedestrian shit there is, um, but you can find it anywhere. Any grocery store you go to, not any grocery store, most grocery stores you go to would have woodford reserve um for me personally it has a lot of caramel notes it's it's a really smooth bourbon uh, one of the reasons why i really like it Um, and their mash bill is really interesting so without getting too geeky i'm going to try to simplify paraphrase really quick okay so mash bill is what they use to make whiskey okay i'm going to keep it that simple To be a bourbon, it has to be 51% corn. So Woodford Reserve is doing 72% corn, 18% rye, 10% malted barley. The reasoning behind this is the corn is generally produces a sweet characteristic in the whiskey. The rye generally produces a spicy characteristic, and the malted barley generally produces a nuttiness. So all three of those combined produce really great easy-to-drink, accessible bourbon. Uh, Retails about $40 a bottle for a 750-milliliter bottle. I know that they have 1 liters. I know they have 1.75s or whatever. They've got all kinds of shapes and sizes of this whiskey. If you see it at a bar, just try it. It's not going to break your budget. I mean, I don't know. If a place charges you $16 for a pour of it, I don't think that's astronomical. If you don't want to buy a whole bottle of whiskey to keep at home, or let's say you buy a bottle and you don't like it, give it to your friends. Don't drive with an open container in your vehicle, put it in your trunk, but give it to your friends. Or when people come over, you have a whiskey to pour them. Anyways, solid uh, choice. Uh, Something that I like to keep on my back bar. That being said, I'm going to jump into quick laws about bourbon. Bourbon has to be made in the United States. Again, has to have 51% corn. It has to have new charred American oak casks. It has to be distilled to no more than 160 proof. And it has to be aged at no more than 125 proof. And it can't be bottled at less than 80 proof. I'll do another podcast where I talk a little bit more about proofs because I realize that that probably sounds really uninteresting uh, or really confusing or really redundant. Um, But I'll jump a little bit more into proofing and... And kind of why that's been an established uh, term and an established process in the production of alcohol, not only in the United States, but across the world. My last item on the docket, Talisker 10-Year Scotch. Talisker is the only distillery that's located on the Isle of Skye. Uh, one of the reasons why I love it, uh, has a lot of dried fruit on the palate, uh, a, l- a maltiness, a long peppery finish, but the thing for me is, is, if you like peated scotch, here's the thing, peated scotch, if you like scotch that has a smoke to it, if you like a scotch that's kind of smoky, I like Talisker. The reason I like Talisker is, I feel like the smoke is there, but I don't feel like it's dominant. I feel like there's a light amount of smoke. I've never been a big fan of Lafroy 10. Ask anybody. I don't like that super peaty, super medicinal taste profile. I do love some other products from Lafroy, but generally too much peat doesn't do it for me. Talisker, to me, Talisker 10-year, let me specify, Talisker 10-year for me is the best balance of peat to fruit to uh, 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 maltiness that I've had in a whiskey and a scotch, a single malted scotch. And I love a lot of single malt scotches that don't have peat. I love Balvini 12. I love all of these other whiskeys, all of these other scotch whiskeys. But Talisker 10, if I have a go-to when it comes to a peated scotch, I will drink Talisker 10. They've been around for a long time, uh, 1831, I think, or something like that. And in 1892, they were leasing the land, uh, the island, from uh, the chief of the clan MacLeod. And they were charged 23 pounds a month and a 10-gallon cask of talisker scotch. If I could be a landlord, I think I would want to make people pay me in alcohol. Anyways, I'm going to leave the podcast on that note. Thanks for joining me again. Peace out.